There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. I hope everyone who celebrated Halloween had a great day and your treat bags were filled with Reese cups. Just like that, it's November and we're closer to moving on to another year. I feel like I blinked and 2017 flew past. Depending on where you lived and with whom you speak, the 70s was either a terrific time to live in Philadelphia or it was one of the worst. In the pro column, we had Fred Shiro, who joined the Flyers coaching staff in 1971 and went on to coach our beloved Broad Street Bullies to back-to-back Stanley Cup wins in 1973 and 1974. We were unstoppable back then with guys like Bill Brossart, Bobby Clark, Bernie Perrant, and Dave Schultz. The Mike Douglas Show, one of the very first talk shows, was filmed in Philadelphia in the 70s. And in 1972, KYW built the show its own studio. It was the only show in the city to ever get its own studio. The Mike Douglas Show was on the air for almost 20 years, and most of those years were spent here in Philly. In August 1972, Philadelphia Phillies Steve Carlton, who was a Southpaw, became the first 20-game winner in the entire National League. Joe Frazier was a fixture in Philly before he fought Muhammad Ali in 1971. Presidential candidate Jimmy Carter visited Philadelphia, so did Senator Ted Kennedy, and the city was already planning for our bicentennial celebration just a few years away. And then there was the other side of Philadelphia in the 70s. Frank Rizzo's administration terrorized minorities in the city. Police brutality was so bad under Rizzo, first as a Philadelphia police commissioner and then as the mayor of the city, there was a federal investigation of police brutality in Philadelphia. You heard a lot about that in the MOVE episodes. Many Philadelphians lived at or below the poverty line. Sections of the city were filled with trash, abandoned cars, and lacking hope. The moniker Philadelphia really found its footing in the 70s. Parts of Northeast Philly, though, always seemed a little different. It feels more like a suburb than part of Philadelphia. I know a few people from the Great Northeast who would like to see the Great Northeast separated from Philly. Certainly, their taxes might be a little lower if they got their wish. Depending on how you cut it, Northeast Philadelphia may be much larger than people realize. It includes neighborhoods like Kensington and Fishtown, But growing up, I always thought of Northeast Philly as the section that we call the far Northeast, the section of the city north of Cotman Avenue, with neighborhoods like Bustleton, Taconi, and Toursdale. It's home to Holmesburg Prison, which we talked about in the last few episodes of Twisted Philly. Taconi is the neighborhood we're talking about today. That's where 17-year-old Dolores Della Pena lived on the corner of Rawl and Tulip Streets with her parents, Ralph and Helen, not far from the Delaware River. In the summer of 1972, Dolores was a recent high school honor student. She graduated from St. Hubert's Catholic High School for Girls in June and enrolled in a program at Northeast Philadelphia's Nazareth Hospital to become an x-ray technician. 
That seemed like a natural fit for Dolores, who was described as a caring, helpful young woman. Every night when Ralph and Helen Della Pena got home from work, the house was clean and dinner was on the table. Dolores cooked for her family and cleaned up around the house almost every night before her parents got home from work. When Dolores disappeared, the neighborhood rumor mill started working overtime. Suddenly, this good girl from the great Northeast ran with a tough crowd and perhaps landed herself in trouble. Her parents knew better, though. Her older brother, Ralph Jr., he knew better, too. People who truly knew Dolores, they all knew better. On Tuesday, July 11, 1972, Dolores spent the day helping her mother settle in after a trip to Disney World. She and her parents just returned from a 10-day visit to Florida, where they soaked up the sun and visited the happiest place on Earth, which hadn't even been open for a year at that time. Dolores and her mother did laundry most of the day. You know how it is when you return home from vacation, and there's so much to clean and unpack. In the afternoon, she took a walk to the grocery store down the street for a pack of smokes. She gave herself a mani-pedi with her favorite dark red nail polish. Later, she changed into a halter top and a pair of bell-bottom jeans. This was 1972, after all. And she headed out for a night with friends. At 8.30 that night, Dolores's father, Ralph, dropped her and her friend Carol Nichols off at the intersection of Frankfurt and Orleans Avenue in Kensington. That's a few miles away from Dolores's Tacony neighborhood. The girls visited Carol's fiancé, then they caught the Frankfurt trolley home. Except Dolores missed her trolley. At about 11.30 that night, Dolores told Carol, I missed my trolley. Now I'll have to wait another 20 minutes. For those of you who may not know what a trolley is, or call it something else in your part of the world, it looks like a small train car that runs on tracks on public streets. You might call it a tram in your neck of the woods. Dolores waited for the next trolley car heading her way, and her father Ralph waited up for her to get home, as he always did. But Dolores never came home. Philadelphia police acted quickly, and it was evident early on in their search something horrible happened to Dolores de la Pena. Around midnight Tuesday night, July 11, 1972, neighbors on Rawl and Tulip Streets claimed they heard a young woman scream. One neighbor in particular told police they saw a young woman fighting with a man in the middle of Tulip Street. The man slapped her across the face and then forced her into a car. Near dawn Wednesday morning, July 12th, a maroon jacket was found under a tree on Tulip Street, only about 25 feet from Dolores de la Pena's home. The jacket belonged to her friend Carol Nichols. Dolores borrowed it Tuesday night while they were visiting Carol's fiancé in Kensington. Across the street from Dolores's house, police found two crosses. Her parents confirmed she wore them on a chain around her neck. Near the crosses, police found Dolores' house key to the back door of her home. They also found blood stains under that tree on Tulip Street where they found the jacket. More blood in the middle of the street in front of Dolores' house. And a third blood stain on the corner of Tulip and Rawl Streets. Detectives believed Dolores got off the trolley a few blocks from her home, and as she was walking towards her house, was abducted in the middle of the street. Dolores de la Pena was mere feet from her home when she was attacked and abducted. Those screams neighbors heard around midnight, they most likely came from Dolores de la Pena. 
The girl seen getting slapped in the street. Police were confident that was Dolores, too. Dolores was in the street outside her home, screaming, fighting, possibly even pleading to someone to let her go. Her father, Ralph Delapena, waiting up for her. Maybe he nodded off on the couch in the living room. No idea his daughter was abducted just a few feet away. Who took her and why? 45 years later, some people are still asking these questions. Within the first 24 hours of Dolores de la Pena's disappearance, Philadelphia Police Northeast Detective Division questioned two young men. Both were Philadelphia boys. Neither were ever implicated in her disappearance. Philadelphia Police widened their search in the days after Dolores disappeared. No one knew whether she was still alive, and the Philadelphia police and detectives' offices worked as if they were racing against a clock. Those were long days filled with tips that didn't pan out, while Dolores's parents grew more and more desperate. About a week and a half after Dolores disappeared, a man named Steve, who lived in Jersey City, New Jersey, packed up his wife, his two kids, the family dog, which was a collie named Yuki, and headed to their summer place in Tom's River, New Jersey. I'm purposely omitting Steve's last name. Tom's River is about 60 miles due east of Philadelphia. If you look at a map, it is a straight shot across Jersey from Philly. It's one of Jersey's more northern shore points, and it has a rather sordid past. The woods in and around Tom's River are a habitual dumping ground. Old tube televisions, liquor bottles and beer cans, a myriad of abandoned items long forgotten. Sometimes, the abandoned items include bodies. Steve and his family arrived in Tom's River late Saturday afternoon on July 22, 1972. The family started to unpack the car for a beach vacation while their collie tore off into the woods. Beach and woods. Sounds like an unlikely combination. But as you drive along the highways towards the Jersey Shore, that's what you see. Dense woods filled with pine trees and a blanket of sand at their bases. These are the New Jersey Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens, Pinelands, or Pineys, depending on who you talk to, represent over 20% of the entire state of New Jersey. At over 1 million acres, the Jersey Pine Barrens are bigger than the Grand Canyon, although perhaps not quite as impressive. Hundreds of years ago, the area was considered uninhabitable by early settlers because the soil was so sandy. What those folks didn't realize, though, was far beneath the layer of soil and sand was a reserve of water so pure it was compared to water from melting glaciers. Yet with all that water far below the surface, the Pine Barrens is a constant fire risk. Native Americans had a very special name for the Jersey Pine Barrens, Papuessing, which means place of the dragon. And that name existed long before the first tale of the legend of the Jersey Devil was ever told. The Pine Barrens have a sordid history. In the early 1900s, the governor of New Jersey visited the Pine Barrens after a scathing report detailing rampant incest, widespread public drunkenness, and what was called general lawlessness. The governor witnessed all this and more with his own eyes. He actually asked the New Jersey state legislature to step in and segregate the Pine Barrens from the rest of the state, calling the inhabitants imbeciles, criminals, and defectives he attributed much of those conditions to constant inbreeding. These are the legends of the Pine Barrens, monsters and devils, 
a burial ground to hide the most hideous crimes. And this is where 17-year-old Dolores Della Pena was found on July 22, 1972. Steve searched for his dog, that Kali Yuki I mentioned a little while ago, who tore off into the woods surrounding Steve's beach house on Oakwood Lane in Toms River, New Jersey. The dog was chasing down the source of a horrible stench, which had been festering for a few days. The smell was so prominent that local residents in Toms River already called the police and asked them to search the woods off Oakwood Lane near Highway 571. When Steve caught up to his pup, the dog had something in his mouth. Yuki found an arm, something Steve initially thought for sure was from a discarded doll. But it wasn't. It was a human arm, ending in a delicate hand with dark red nail polish. Steve found the second arm just a few feet away. And 10 yards from the arms, deeper within the woods, Steve and his dog Yuki found a headless torso, although what they found barely resembled a human being. The torso was gutted and skinned, like something a hunter might do to a deer. The first officer on the scene was Lieutenant Jack Hughes from Jackson Township Police. Almost immediately, Lieutenant Hughes noticed the way the body was dismembered. The arms hadn't merely been chopped off. They were disarticulated at the sockets, indicating the murderer had some level of skill, like a butcher. Layers of skin were removed from the fingertips to prevent police from making a fingerprint identification. And without the head, there was no opportunity to match the victim with dental records. Within hours, law enforcement from Ocean County, New Jersey, Jersey State Police, and the FBI converged on this tiny stretch of woods in Toms River, New Jersey. There was an unlikely chance the discovery of these body parts were in some way related to the disappearance of Dolores Della Pena. But the Philadelphia Police Northeast Detective Division didn't take any chances. So they, along with Dr. Marvin Aronson, who was the Philadelphia medical examiner at the time, headed to Tom's River with an x-ray of Dolores Della Pena's spine. Now, I thought that seemed odd, that the medical examiner would have an x-ray of Dolores Della Pena's spine. Well, that x-ray technician program that she'd registered for after she graduated high school, one of the activities during orientation was for each student to get an x-ray. Dolores's just happened to be of her spine. The only intact, identifiable bone structure found in the woods that hot July day in 1972 was the spine. Tragically, the spine and the mutilated torso found by Steve and his dog matched Dolores Della Pena's x-rays. About a week after this grisly discovery off Oakwood Lane, eight miles away in another section of the Pine Barrens near a dirt road off Route 571, an old man found a woman's leg. The police were called in, and a second leg was found, about 150 yards from the first. The toes on each foot had that unmistakable dark red nail polish. Blood tests conducted by the medical examiner identified the legs as a match to Dolores Della Pena. That was July 29, 1972. Within a span of less than three weeks, Dolores Della Pena was assaulted, abducted, tortured, and dismembered. Her remains were scattered throughout Toms River, New Jersey, 60 miles from home. She was 17 years old. 
She'd only been home one day after a trip to Disney World with her parents when she disappeared. Dolores also visited Wildwood Crest earlier that summer. She and her friends had a beach house and planned to spend the summer there. Dolores came home after a few weeks and had every intention of returning to the shores soon after her family's trip to Disney World. Now, if you don't know the southern Jersey shore, Wildwood is just an exit or two before you hit my favorite place on earth, Cape May, New Jersey. And it is wild. Their boardwalk is huge, and it's loud, and it's the shore point most of the kids with whom I grew up spent their senior week. Senior week, if it's not a thing where you live, it's definitely a thing out here in Philly. The week after graduation, high school seniors head to the beach, they spend a week having fun, causing trouble, and more often than not, they spend it in Wildwood. I was in Wildwood for my senior week for a few days. I can't say I remember my entire time there because it was fueled with underage drinking and making out with boys. When you were in Wildwood, you got a little wild. I have plenty of friends who vacation with families in Wildwood today. It's like any town. If you're looking for quiet, family fun, you'll find it. And if you're looking for trouble, you can find that too. Between July 11th, when Dolores disappeared, and July 29th, when the last of her remains were found, police questioned as many of Dolores' friends as they could find, including those who stayed with her at that beach house in Wildwood, New Jersey. New Jersey State Police continued combing the woods throughout Ocean County. Divers searched nearby lakes because Dolores' head was still missing. For all their efforts, there were no suspects. There were no clues about who committed this brutal act of violence against a smart young girl next door from the great Northeast. The weeks dragged into months. Summer came to an end. Dolores' friends scattered in the wind, as high school graduates often do between college, trade school, jobs, and adventures. St. Hubert's School for Girls announced a $500 scholarship in Dolores de la Pena's name. As December 1972 rolled around, Philadelphia police interviewed hundreds of people, and they weren't any closer to finding a suspect in Dolores' death. Her family struggled with the loss of their daughter and sister. Dolores' birthday was December 13th. She would have turned 18 years old in December 1972. Her family would have had a cake and a party. She could have invited friends over, and instead, her parents visited her grave at Resurrection Cemetery. They marked her birthday and her memory with gladiolas on her tombstone. I wish I could tell you there was a break in the case that summer or even that year. I wish I could say Ralph and Helen Delapena's hopes of discovering what happened to their daughter weren't in vain, or that Philadelphia police, especially the Northeast Philly Detectives Division, and the district attorney arrested and charged a suspect. But I can't because it took decades to uncover what happened to Dolores de la Pena. And as of today, no one was ever charged with her murder. Twenty-two detectives worked Dolores de la Pena's case. There are so many names from the Northeast Philadelphia Detectives Unit. But there are a few that really stood out, at least to me. Major Crimes Unit Detective John Del Carlino spent almost every night for months visiting Dolores' parents. 
when he wasn't out chasing down leads, although most of those leads never amounted to anything. Detective Del Carlino was appointed family liaison for the Della Penas, and that made it easier for her parents to interact with the police. By August 27, 1979, just about six weeks after Dolores was abducted, the Northeast Detectives Unit conducted 1,526 interviews. Detective Del Carlino worked with the New Jersey detectives and state police, coordinating interviews with people in Jersey. Their hustle was strong, even the most mundane tip that they knew wouldn't pan out, like a local old-timer who didn't like the look of a long hair driving past his house. Everything was followed and investigated. Police had a description of Dolores' abductor and his car. It was a maroon Chevy made sometime between 65 and 68 based on the taillight design. And the man was between 20 to 25 years old, white, slender at about 160 pounds, maybe standing 5 foot 10. He had light brown chin-length hair and bushy sideburns. Basically, he was one of thousands of guys in the 70s. For every benign lead that didn't pan out, there were the crazies. Psychics who claimed to know what happened to Dolores or where the police could find her head, which to this day has never been recovered. In January 1979, a 35-year-old Kensington man named John Egan, who was charged with murder in a local shooting, told police he heard the voice of Dolores de la Pena speaking to him from above. He claimed he was in touch with Dolores, and she guided him to shoot 31-year-old John Morrow, also from Philadelphia, for Morrow's treatment of de la Pena but the two didn't know each other. John Egan was one of those 1,500 interviews early on in Dolores' case, but he was never considered a suspect. There was no movement in Dolores de la Pena's murder for over 20 years, and that is not for a lack of effort. Sixteen years after her death, Detective John Del Carlino was retired, but continued to investigate the case on his own time. Over the years, he'd become close friends with Ralph de la Pena, and he was the father of two young girls himself when Dolores was murdered. By 1988, Dolores' parents were in their 60s. They'd moved from the house on Rawl Street years before, and who could blame them? Looking out the windows at the tree across the street where Dolores was attacked, knowing she was so close to her front door when she was abducted. There were so many theories about who took Dolores and why. Retired Detective Del Carlino always believed Dolores knew her abductor, but Philadelphia police disagreed with that theory. They investigated Philadelphia serial killer Gary Heidnick, thinking perhaps Dolores was an early victim of Gary's, and that wasn't the case. They considered Ted Bundy a possible spect for a short time. Bundy lived in Philadelphia for a few years with his grandparents when he was a very young child, but it wasn't Bundy either. In 1985, an inmate at Greaterford Prison in the suburbs of Philadelphia claimed he had information about Dolores de la Pena's death. By 1988, the inmates' claims still hadn't been investigated. Of course, Ralph de la Pena was aware of this information, and he too didn't understand why the city wouldn't investigate this inmate's statements. Eventually, they did. On Thursday, September 8, 1994, a headline on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer read, Arrests Expected in 1972 Murder. That's a fairly definitive headline. Philadelphia police identified six suspects in the abduction and murder of Dolores de la Pena. Three were already dead, but the other three men were alive and well, living their lives in Pennsylvania. 
It was the statements from that Greaterford prison inmate a few years earlier that reinvigorated this cold case. He claimed he was at a garage in the Kensington section of Philadelphia the night Dolores was abducted. He saw Dolores strapped to an old car seat, her hands bound behind her back while she was beaten and assaulted by a gang of drug dealers. Then one man was out of control and took a machete and you know what happened because of how her remains were found. This inmate was 16 years old in 1972. He was terrified the gang would do the same to him if he told anyone what he saw. But in the late 80s, he was in his 30s, serving a long sentence, and he wasn't fearful anymore. He shared his story with a guard at Greaterford Prison who immediately contacted Philadelphia police. This prisoner testified before a grand jury about what he saw on July 11, 1972. Philadelphia police spent a few years investigating his statements, running down new leads, investigating suspects, and identifying witnesses to events that were 20 years old. They uncovered a second witness, a man who was delivering drugs to that same garage, who also saw Dolores strapped to an old car seat, beaten and assaulted by this gang. Finally, in 1994, police were ready to present their case to the district attorney's office, and they expected to be granted arrest warrants. As if all of that wasn't enough evidence. In 1993, Ralph De La Pena received a letter from a national officer of the Pagans Motorcycle Club. I had no idea they had official officer positions. This man was serving time for murder out of state. In his letter to Dolores's father, he claimed he loaned the car to the men who abducted and murdered Dolores De La Pena. Two decades is a very long time to live with an ugly secret. So, I guess I'll first offer that I was or am in no way directly responsible for your daughter's murder. As was explained to me by the perpetrators after the fact, the vehicle was used in Dolores' murder. These club members also murdered my wife. So you see, Mr. Delapena, we both have vested interests concerning this matter. I need to tell you, there was no reason for Dolores' death, and if I could have known ahead of time, I would have stopped it. Why did these dealers target Dolores? The first step that sealed Dolores De La Pena's fate was that trip to Wildwood Crest, New Jersey, after she graduated. Everything comes back to Wildwood. Dolores's parents rented her a beach house for the summer as a graduation gift. Soon after graduation, Dolores De La Pena and three of her girlfriends from Northeast Philly headed down the Garden State Parkway, past miles of desolate woods along the Pine Barrens, to spend their summer soaking up the Jersey sun. As often happens when teenagers are hanging out at the beach, lots of different people come and go. They may be your friends from back home or friends of your roommates. They're friends of friends. They're friends of people staying in neighboring beach houses. Or they're just guys who see a house full of young kids and think they'd be an easy target. Some of the people hanging out at the home Dolores shared with her friends were drug dealers. In mid-June 1972, drugs were stolen from one of the girls staying at the beach house in Wildwood Crest, New Jersey, with Dolores and her friends. That girl's boyfriend accused the kids from Kensington of stealing drugs, and before you knew it, the beach house went from awkward to awful. It was so bad, in fact, Dolores left. 
She returned to Philadelphia and told her parents she desperately wanted to join them on the family trip to Disney World. Dolores said it may be the last time she gets to go. Did she think something horrible was about to happen to her? Dolores did want to join her parents on vacation. She was very close with them. She did everything she could to take care of them, their home, and be a good daughter. And Dolores also needed to get away from the drama in the Wildwood Beach House. She expected after a few weeks the commotion and accusation over missing drugs would die down, and she'd return to Wildwood soon after the family vacation and spend the rest of the summer on the beach. By the time she returned from Disney World, a gang of drug dealers were convinced Dolores de la Pena stole drugs from the shore house she'd rented earlier that summer, and they wanted to make an example out of her. The night she was abducted, at least one of the dealers was waiting for Dolores near her home on Rawl Street. Based on evidence the police found, the jacket discarded under a tree across the street, Dolores's blood on the grass and in the middle of the road, her jewelry ripped off, Dolores put up a fight but she was no match for her abductor. The gang members drove Dolores de la Pena to a garage on Jasper Street in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, where as many as eight other men were waiting. She was strapped to an old car seat. Her hands were bound tightly behind her back. Dolores was beaten. She was hit with a machete. She may or may not have been gang raped. She was decapitated, dismembered, gutted and discarded like trash throughout the desolate New Jersey Pine Barrens. Many people wondered why now. Why were these witnesses coming forward? Could they be believed? They were serving time. Was this just a matter of someone hoping to get a lighter sentence? When you're in prison for murder, you don't get a lighter sentence. That's set in stone. These men were older now, in their 30s, some were in their 40s. Time and solitude changed their perspective. And the codes of silence some of these men lived by when they were in gangs no longer existed. The gangs were gone, gang members were dead or in jail, and they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives with heavy hearts and guilty consciences. The stolen drugs started all of this and Dolores de la Pena did not steal drugs from the Wildwood Beach House. It was two other people staying in the home. But once Dolores was gone, when she left to go on vacation with her family, it was easy to lay blame on her. It was safer to lay the blame on her. In the 70s, Detective John Del Carlino believed a friend of Dolores's knew exactly what happened to her and why. But nothing the police did could get this person to talk. And he was right. It's possible the other people in the beach house thought that summer once Dolores was gone, that would be the end of it. They may not have realized the level of depravity and vengeance that existed in these men who wanted to make an example of Dolores de la Pena. They were covering their asses when they lied and said she stole the drugs. And those lies got her killed in the most horrific manner. That was September 1994. And no matter what it said in Philadelphia headlines, no arrests were made. Two years later, on July 10, 1996, almost 24 years to the day of Dolores de la Pena's murder, Philadelphia police again asked the district attorney's office to approve arrest warrants, this time for five men connected to one of the longest investigations in Philadelphia's history. In 1994, police identified six suspects and requested arrest warrants for three, as three others were dead. 
But by 1996, Philadelphia police identified a total of nine suspects in Dolores's murder. Two more were already in jail serving long-term sentences, and another suspect was deceased. You can probably guess the name of the district attorney. It was D.A. Lynn Abraham. Lynn Abraham reviewed the case for weeks and believed there was still much more work to be done before she could approve arrest warrants. When her office was questioned by the Philadelphia Inquirer, a spokesperson said, this is an open investigation and we don't discuss open cases. The biggest issue that the DA's office had with bringing charges against any of the suspects the police identified was that the witnesses were criminals. Criminals don't always make the best witnesses, especially in front of a jury. But at least one of them testified before a grand jury. And the grand jury felt strongly enough about that testimony that the police were told to go ahead and request arrest warrants. Even with all of that, the DA's office continued to say it's not enough. The home Dolores Delapena's parents shared in the 90s and early 2000s wasn't the home where Dolores and their older son Ralph Jr. grew up. But if all you saw was Dolores's bedroom, you would have thought you were in the same old house on the corner of Rawl and Tulip Streets in Taconi. Dolores's white lace christening gown hung from a shelf high up on one wall. On another wall, a cross hung above her bed. The same bed, the same bedroom furniture, set up exactly as it was on the day Dolores Della Pena disappeared. For 40 years, her mother maintained that bedroom exactly as it looked when Dolores was alive. She washed the bed linens. She dusted the dresser. She vacuumed the carpet for 40 years. Dolores's mother, Helen Della Pena, occasionally slept in Dolores's bed when she had trouble sleeping, praying to her daughter to help her get some rest. Never a day passes without me thinking about what happened. It's there all the time, when I put my head on the pillow, when I try to sleep at night. Sometimes I felt like I couldn't go on. I didn't want to live like this. We didn't want to go to our graves not knowing that was hurting me more, not knowing why. What did she do to deserve to die the way she did? I just can't understand this. Maybe it's finally going to come to an end. One of the reasons her family moved, besides the obvious, was Dolores' presence was in the house. Dolores Delapena's mother said she occasionally smelled Dolores' perfume. Other times she felt Dolores pass by her. One night, the family organ Dolores loved to play began making music, and there was no one in the room. The family just couldn't take it. All of it was too hard. It was too painful. They only moved five blocks away, but those five blocks were enough. Dolores's parents had special masses read every year on July 11th on the anniversary of her death at their family church. Ralph and Dolores Della Pena watched their family grow up. Their son Ralph Jr. was married. He had children. There were nieces and nephews who never knew their aunt. Their daughter never became an x-ray technician. She never married. She never had children of her own. And in the late 90s, while the Philadelphia police waited for the DA's office to approve arrests for Dolores' murder, Helen and Ralph Della Pena waited with them. And they waited, and then they waited some more. In the late 90s, Philadelphia police continued pushing the DA's office for arrest warrants. And District Attorney Lynn Abraham repeated what her office said in 1994 and in 1996. There isn't enough to make a case or get a conviction. Philadelphia detectives, though, they knew the case would never be any better than it was in 1996. Dolores's father, Ralph Delapena, passed away on October 26, 2004. He was 79. He left behind his wife, Helen, his son, Ralph Jr., 
grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. He died without ever seeing his daughter's killers brought to justice. When he was in his 60s, Ralph Delapana told Philadelphia reporters, we have to get justice for Dolores before I go to my grave. So many Philadelphia police and detectives did everything they could. They did more than they thought they were capable of to bring Ralph and Helen the closure they so desperately needed. But it didn't happen before Ralph Delapena died in 2004. Eleven years later, Dolores' mother, Helen Delapena, died on December 9, 2015. Helen was 88 years old. She spent almost exactly half her life mourning the loss of her daughter, keeping Dolores' memory alive and wondering why did this have to happen to my little girl. Forty-five years after Dolores de la Pena's murder, no one was ever charged. At this point, it's highly unlikely anyone ever will be. Like the detective said in 1996, case would never be any better than it was then, and that was 21 years ago. Philadelphia's had many different district attorneys since Lynn Abraham in the 90s. Our last one, Seth Williams, resigned earlier this year amid bribery and corruption allegations. A few weeks ago, he was disbarred and sentenced to five years in jail. I contacted the Philadelphia attorney's office where Lynn Abraham works today. I let them know I'd like to talk to her about Dolores Delapena's case and why she felt there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges against anyone. I'll let you know if I ever hear back from her. Police never found Dolores Delapena's head. Now there's a statement you don't think you will ever hear yourself say. In the 70s, a few young boys swimming at Dinosaur Lake in northeast Philly claimed they saw a girl's head with long, dark hair at the bottom of the lake. Police dredged part of the lake and never found anything. Dinosaur Lake sits where the Franklin Mills Mall now stands today. The lake is still there, although it's more of a pond now than a lake. The grounds are maintained by Ben Salem Country Club. There aren't any dinosaurs today, but in the 70s and 80s, there was a small island in the middle of a small lake in northeast Philadelphia with enormous dinosaur statues. And that's how it got its name. If you talk to anyone who grew up in that part of Philly 30 or 40 years ago, so many of them have tales about swimming or fishing at Dinosaur Lake. Besides the story about Dinosaur Lake, there's another rumor that Dolores Delapena's head wound up in the wall at one of the gang members' homes soon after she was dismembered. And there's a third, even stranger story from 2013 connected to Dolores Delapena. In May 2013, a sculpture was left overnight at a construction site outside the East Hampton Library in Long Island, New York. It was a bust of a woman, just the head and the shoulders. The sculpture was made from clay, then painted over, and it features a woman with curly hair who looks as if she's probably in her 40s. The library staff were baffled about where the statue came from or who would have left it outside on a construction site. Now, why did people think it had something to do with Dolores de la Pena? On the back of the sculpture was an inscription, and it read, My wife forever, de la Pena. When I found this story, I was actually shocked anyone would think it had anything to do with Dolores de la Pena. The sculpture is of a grown woman, much older than Dolores when she was murdered. The hair is different, and even if someone attempted an older rendering of Dolores, it looks absolutely nothing like her. I don't think people realize the inscription Della Pena could very likely be a first and last name, not the last name of 17-year-old Dolores Della Pena, the murder victim from Philadelphia in 1972. In 2003, the last time the Philadelphia police tried to get arrest warrants against suspect in Dolores Della Pena's murder, 
Four of the nine men in connection with this case were dead. Two were already in jail. The other three living in Pennsylvania. Two were living in the Philadelphia area, and one was living out in Berks County near Reading. The city never released their names, and that makes sense. If you haven't been charged with a crime, your name shouldn't be public, innocent until proven guilty, right? Now in 2017, I wonder how many of the remaining five men, whether they're in prison or living with their families, are still alive. I wonder how old they are. Do they have children of their own? Do they have daughters? Do they have granddaughters? Have their lives changed since the night they demonstrated a total disregard for the life of Dolores Della Pena? Are they able to sleep at night? I hope they're not. I hope when they close their eyes, they see Dolores's brown eyes looking back at them. I want to thank members of the Twisted Philly podcast group for suggesting this story. I knew about Dolores's story, and I'd thought off and on about including it in the podcast, but it just didn't come up before now. Here's the thing about Dolores's story. So many of us in Philly know about the murder of Dolores Della Pena and that her remains were found in the Pine Barrens and nobody was ever charged with her murder. But until I started researching, I had no idea what actually happened to her. I had no idea Philadelphia police were ready to arrest anybody in her murder. Not once, but three times. I can't imagine what this must have been like for her family. For her brother Ralph, who's still alive, and her nieces and nephews, I send out my most heartfelt prayers for the sorrow and sadness you and your family have lived with for the last 45 years. Before I go, I have a few special thank yous to share. Thank you to Margot D., who provided the voiceover of Helen Dillapena. Margot is the co-host of the Book vs. Movie podcast, co-host of the Best Neighbors podcast, and the host of the Not Fade Away podcast. Thank you also to Jeremy Collins for the voiceover work he provided as the National Officer of the Pagans. Jeremy is the host of the Podcast We Listen To podcast. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.